This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Boxing has always been a sport that's run deep in, let's call it the underworld. For as long as people have been fighting for money, people have been buying off refs or throwing matches. Managers and promoters have been doing whatever they could to make a buck off of young fighters before their time was up. All of that was built into boxing way before Don King got in the game. But culture writer Michael Harriet says, a world built on backroom deals and under-the-table payments let Don play to his strengths. I mean, it's a criminal enterprise, this world that Don King exists in. If you are going to be in that world, you kind of need somebody like Don King who you know can maneuver in that world. And Don sure as hell could maneuver, especially when the law got close. I mean, they tried. Like the time a U.S. attorney by the name of Rudy Giuliani came for Don with dozens of fraud charges. In 1992, Don even got called to testify by a Senate committee looking into allegations of corruption in boxing. There doesn't seem to be any tape of this, so I'm just going to read from the transcript. Question. Could you state your name, please, sir? Answer. Don King. Easy enough so far. Question. Do you hold a position with Don King Productions? Answer. Gentlemen, my attorney has previously advised you that there is an investigation presently being conducted by the United States Attorney's Office in New York City, which relates to me and possibly to others. Were it not for this investigation, I would be pleased to answer your questions. However, in view of this investigation, I have been advised by my attorney, Mr. Green, to invoke my constitutional privilege not to testify. All right, yada, yada, yada. I wish to state that as soon as the investigation in New York is resolved, I will certainly reconsider any request from this committee to appear to testify or to otherwise provide information. Dude asks Don King if he works for Don King Productions, like the company that's named after him. And Don takes the fifth. The Senate lawyer guy, though, he's not done. He asks Don if he's had any business dealings with known organized crime figure, John Gotti. Answer. I respectfully decline to answer the question on the basis of the protection afforded me under the Constitution. Senate man lists some more names for Don. Paul Castellano, Tony Panzarello, Thomas DeBella, Maddie the Horse Ianello, Danny Pagano, and Michael Franzis. Do you know or have you ever met or have you ever had any business dealings with any of those individuals? Answer. I respectfully decline to answer the question on the basis of the protection afforded me under the Constitution. He asked Don straight up if he grossed $3 million on the Tim Witherspoon-Frank Bruno fight and only paid Tim $90,000, whether he made fighters sign blank contracts. And you guessed it, Don takes the fifth. And that was that on that. He was in the business of doing partially bad things. And so it's fair to say, hey, he did some bad things. And it's also fair to say he was better than all of the other people because they were also doing bad things. He hustled his way. But if you're on a team with the best bank robber in the country and he takes a little more of his cut, at least you're still with the best bank robbers. And one of the most important attributes of a good bank robber, make sure you never get caught. And Don, he wasn't about to get hemmed up again. 
They have tried to send me to the penitentiary. They charged me with 23 counts of income tax evasion and all type of skimming and, and all type of illegal profiteering. For me to survive at number one for something like 15 or 16 years, no matter what it is, I'm able to survive because of my acumen. Don can duck and weave with the toughest promoters in the game and the cops and rumors about the mob because, well, he was Don King. So when the FBI turned the heat up on Don back in the 1980s, Don, he was ready. I'm Panama Jackson, and from something else, this is Power, Don King. Episode 4, Catch Me If You Can. We're going to work our way back to Don, but we're going to start our story with another interesting character. My name is Michael Francis. If you're asking yourself, wait a minute, wasn't that one of the guys the Senate dude asked Don King about? Well, it sure was. Franzese came two names after Matty the Horse. Well, yeah, I was part of the Colombo family, which was one of the five New York Mafia La Cosa Nostra families. Michael's dad was the underboss for the family, so a big deal. But the plan was for Michael to stay away from the family business. Originally for me, uh, my dad didn't want that life for me, and I was, uh, was not headed in that direction. Michael went to college to study pre-med, but then plans changed. My dad was convicted on a very serious federal crime, masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison. Michael's dad was like, you know what, Michael? I changed my mind. Someone's got to keep the family business going. The only way that I was able to help my dad from essentially serving out a death sentence, he was 50 years old when he went in, was, in my dad's opinion, to be involved in his life. And that's how I got involved. Michael became a made man on Halloween night in 1975. You come into the life, you come in as a soldier. And I had that rank until 1980 when I was appointed a capo or capo de regime. As a capo, Michael had all these different guys who worked for him, you know, associates and soldiers. They collected debts, oversaw the family's businesses. They were like the worker bees of the mafia. We were the, the one criminal group, I would say, or enterprise that really did infiltrate every fabric of society. You know, we controlled all the unions during that time. We infiltrated a lot of businesses. We had a lot of political connections. I mean, we had connections right into the White House, you know, during the Kennedy era. Michael says the mob also had a lot of connections in the boxing world. People involved in boxing normally don't go to Harvard and Yale. They're street guys. And many of them came out of our neighborhoods. So the culture was intertwined in that way. Of course, it was more than just similar backgrounds that attracted the mob's attention. Quite honestly, there was a lot of corruption in the sport. So there was money to be made. And that's always a consideration for guys like me at that time. You know, how can we make money? You know a good way to make sure you win a giant bet on a big boxing match? Maybe bet on the guy you didn't pay to take a dive in the third round. You can manipulate the sport to your advantage, especially if you had trainers and fighters. Or if you wanted a fighter you controlled to get a title shot sooner rather than later, the family had a solution for that too. Some of the ruling agencies, some of them were on the take. It was easy to get rankings at the time. If you had a fighter that you owned and you wanted to get him ranked, you know, you pass an envelope, not all the time, but quite often, and, and that's how the system works. By the early 1980s, Michael was balling. I was flying pretty high. I had a jet plane. I had a helicopter. I had houses in Florida and 
California, New York. He'd gotten his hands into all sorts of businesses. I had a couple of automobile dealerships. I had a film production company. But the most lucrative racket that I got involved in was uh, wholesale gasoline. I was uh, collecting tax on every gallon of gasoline, but not paying the government. And at the height of my operation, we were pulling in eight to $10 million a week. And the more successful he was, the more opportunities came his way. So in that life, you know, money is equal to power and it attracts a lot of attention from other people in that life. So Michael wasn't surprised when this small time boxing promoter reached out to the family. He wanted Michael to meet with a South American guy named Victor who was looking to launder millions of dollars in drug money. The promoter said the guy's plan was to get into boxing and he had a thought, maybe Michael could help him out. So Michael met up with Victor in Atlantic City at a fight of a boxer that Michael had a little piece of. And the two of them got along great. We became friends, basically. After that first meeting, they started hanging out more. I mean, we played racquetball together. We flew on my plane to Florida to see a boxing match. We went out to dinner together. We just spent a lot of time together. It became clear that Victor didn't just want to get into boxing. He had a very specific ask. They wanted me to make an introduction to Don King. And they said they had a lot of money and he was the guy that they wanted to do promotions with. Now, Michael didn't know Don himself, but he knew he could set up a meeting if he needed to. But before I was going to do that, I wanted to make sure I knew who I was dealing with. But as it turned out, Michael had it very, very wrong about just who he was dealing with. Victor Quintana wasn't who he said he was at all. Victor was about 6'2", about 225, 230, was a karate champion. Chuck Norris was his best man when he got married. You know, I always used to tease him, maybe we should put you in the ring. You know, he'd probably do pretty well, too. This is former FBI Special Agent Joe Spinelli, and he knew Victor well enough to tease him because Victor was also in the FBI. The whole South American drug dealer thing, yeah, that was just a front. The Bureau gave him an apartment on the west side, beautiful apartment. Uh, right across from Lincoln Center. He had uh, a couple cars, Rolls Royce and Eldorado just to run around and, and city in. And we opened a, a promotional company right across the street from Madison Square Garden called TKO Promotions. All of this was in service of an undercover operation that Joe had given the catchy name Operation Crown Royal. I was going home one night on the LIE and basically there was a sign there. This is when we were just getting ready to start the operation. And there's this big bottle of Crown Royal. And I said, man, that'd be a cool name for an undercover operation. To understand how it got to the point where Joe was sending in a fake drug kingpin in a Rolls Royce, we got to go back a couple of years. Joe had just finished working on the Abscam case, this corruption case involving prominent businessmen and politicians and a mess of bribes, when he started hearing these whispers about some shady stuff going down with the boxing tournament that Don King had helped organize for ABC. I was actually looking for something to do. And I went to my supervisors and I said, you know, they just came out with this U.S. boxing tournament. And there's all these allegations of corruption and, and fixed fights and, and kickbacks and everything like that. And I said, maybe it's something we should, you know, take a look at. This story was hella messy. Don had stocked the tournament with all these fighters that he and his associates controlled. There were allegations that he had rigged the boxing rankings and that he had forced all these boxers into signing contracts that gave him options on all their future fights. Finally, it got so bad that ABC had to pull the plug on the whole thing. And Don 
Well, Don got the attention of Joe. So towards the beginning of 1981, Joe starts reaching out to people in the boxing world, trying to understand who knows what. One of the first people I interviewed was a fellow by the name of Richie Giacchetti, who was actually Larry Holmes' trainer and knew Don King very, very well. And I interviewed him in Eastern Pennsylvania at the Sheridan there. And he told us all these different things about all the atrocities that were actually transpiring in the sport, where fighters were getting shortchanged. Specifically, Larry was getting shortchanged. He was getting shortchanged by Don. Even better, Giacchetti had been making secret recordings of his conversations with Don and Larry that he said would prove everything he was claiming. But when Joe listened to the tapes, there was some juicy stuff about Don getting threatened by a mob guy, but nothing that would really hold up in court. So Joe reached out to Larry Holmes himself. I went to Larry's house, sat down with him in his living room where he has a, a swimming pool in the form of a boxing glove. And, you know, I asked him for his help. This is the heavyweight champ of the world, baddest guy on the planet at the time, unequivocally. And he looked at me and he said, I really would like to help you, Joe, but I can't. I got to make a living. There are guys out there who can hurt me and hurt me bad. I just, I got a family and I don't want to take a chance. When I left there, I started to ask myself, what am I really going to be able to accomplish here? Joe was working around the clock at this point, and eventually, the stress of the investigation took him out. I got Bell's palsy doing the operation. I was paralyzed on the left side of my face. I couldn't do much with it. They told me I was going to be out three months, and I laughed at the doctor. Two weeks later, Joe was back at it. By now, he had a pretty good understanding of the mess that was the boxing world, like how corrupt the ranking system was and how deep the mob ran through it or how all these different managers and promoters were taking advantage of the fighters. But Joe decided his investigation should lock in on just Don. Don was number one in the sport at that time, so guess what? He's high profile, and that's the guy they're going to be looking at. But there were others who did the same thing. Still, even as high profile as he was, it wasn't easy to get the goods on Don. Joe talked to anybody and everybody around boxing. Well, look, (laughs) we got a lot on tape, but you got to decipher... Who's telling you what? And, you know, how reliable is it? We heard all these stories. I mean, a lot of them came from the fighters, believe it or not. A lot of them. I won't mention names, per se, because of the confidentiality of it all. But we had we had several fighters tell us about how he ripped them off, you know, uh, how, he, you know, he threatened them, how he had threatened them with that he had bad friends and things of that nature. And you wouldn't believe the stories we heard. But when Joe wanted them to testify, they'd all be like, nah. I'm not about to cross up Don King. He even put a couple fighters in front of a grand jury, and Joe says, once they took the stand, all of a sudden these fighters couldn't find nothing to say about Don King. They contradicted their own testimony as to what they told us in those interviews. So, you know, were they open for a perjury indictment? Yup. Did I want to see that happen? Truthfully? Absolutely not. Putting fighters in jail was not the idea, believe me. That was not what we were looking to do. They're the ones who are the most important commodity in the sport, and they're the ones that are being really (laughs) taken advantage of every which way but Sunday. In the end, Joe decided if he was going to catch Don doing anything dirty, he was going to have to get someone in a room with him, which is when he started to plan his whole undercover operation. He was a few months into shaping things up when he got a weird message. Don King had just flown back from the Bahamas where he had gotten into a fist fight with a rival promoter and the dude's bodyguards. And Don said he wanted to file charges against the guy. After filing his complaint, 
he asked to speak to a particular FBI agent he happened to know was already investigating boxing, Joe Spinelli. He filed a criminal complaint, asked to speak to me, wanted to talk to me about what had happened. So I go to I go to East 69th Street where Don King's Productions is located. I walk in and you have to take the elevator up to the second floor. It's really a unique place. It's beautiful. Don was there sitting behind his desk and he was looking rough. I can see he's got bruises on his face, his lips all beat up. You can see he took some shots. But Don didn't bring Joe there just to talk about getting beat up in the Bahamas. And he gets up and he stands up and he goes, here comes the Emma F that knows more about me than me. He goes, I wake up in the morning and I look at the ceiling and I see Joe Spinelli. And I walk down the street and I look over my shoulder and I see Joe Spinelli. I don't know why he's always following me. It was like Don wanted to get Spinelli there so he could get a read of him, figure out who this guy was that kept Don's name in his mouth. Maybe even see if there wasn't a way he could use some of that Don King charm to come to a kind of understanding. After explaining a little about what went down with him catching hands in the Bahamas, Don got right up next to Joe. He put his arm around my shoulder, and I'll never forget it, he's a big guy, you know, he's a really big man. He put his arm around my shoulder and he said, you know, Joey, I'm not the worst guy in boxing. I'm not really a bad guy. I outwork everybody. Yeah, yeah, I know how to talk the language. I know how to get these guys to fight for me. But Joe, he goes, I play by the rules. You know what the problem is? You don't like the rules. Joe says he left that meeting impressed by Don and half convinced by what he said about boxing. But it wasn't anywhere near enough to get him to drop the investigation. All right, just to recap. There's an FBI agent named Joe Spinelli who was all about getting some dirt on Don King. And Joe set up a sting called Operation Crown Royal. The whole premise of Crown Royal we had an undercover FBI agent who was posing as a drug dealer and, and basically looking to launder money in the fight game. And the premise was that he had millions of dollars, so we had to go to the biggest promoter to do it. We couldn't have those small-time little fight. That wasn't going to get us where we wanted to be. That phony drug dealer named Victor, if you'll remember, had gotten in touch with a mobster named Michael Franzis to set up a meeting with Don. Maybe Don could clean a few million bucks for them. Michael and Victor got all buddy-buddy, you know, took trips together, played racquetball together. Very 1980s white dude activities. This is Michael. He was always telling me he had a back problem, complaining about his back. What I didn't realize at the time is he had a Nagra tape recorder on him, and it was taped through his back. But Michael hadn't figured that part out yet, so he set out to connect his new buddy with Don King. First step, make sure you don't cross any wires. I met with a couple of my mob associates to let them know that I was going to meet Don because that's kind of proper protocol in our life. When somebody else had a relationship with another person like Don, you know, we would just go let them know, hey, we're going to be doing business with him. We're just putting you on notice. So I had that meeting. I cleared everything first. Next, make sure you're not going to embarrass yourself. I said, look, the last thing I'm going to do before bringing you to Don, I want to see the money. Don is a serious player. And I want to know that you have the money. Victor, he had the money, millions of dollars in cash. So it was on to the next step. Figure out who in your circle can pass you along to Don. When I was ready to make the meeting, Al Sharpton at the time was, a, was an associate of mine. And he was a street guy in many ways. And so I got a hold of Al and I said, I want you to go see Don and set up a meeting. Yeah, Al Sharpton. 
the Black institution, Al Sharpton, who now is as likely to be speaking at the home going of any famous Black person as he is at a protest for Black lives. If one sincerely believes in the progress that has been made since the 60s, one would then finish the task rather than say, we've made some progress, so let's stop there. But Michael says Reverend Al Sharpton once had this whole other life as a wheeler and dealer. Al was kind of a gun for hire at that point in time. He was kind of the liaison to the black community for us, and he was very good at it, and we paid him, and that's why I call him a gun for hire. So when it came time to meet Don, I said, Al, this is what was customary for us. I said, I want you to go and set up a meeting, tell him I want to see him, and when I get there, I'll explain what it's all about. Al did that. He was the middleman. But even once you've gone through that whole process, you still got to make sure your own ass is covered. So when the day to meet with Don finally came, Michael made sure he and Don were on the same page. When I got there, I said, you guys all wait here. I want to go in and speak to Don alone first. And that's when I went in and I laid it out to him. I said, Don, look, I have these two guys that are around me for eight months. I verified that they have money. They want to be in the business with you. They want to start at the top. They got 15 million bucks. I think Don said at the time, you'd need about three million to get into the promotion with me. But I said, Don, play it straight because I can only go back eight months with them. And I don't know anybody else that really knows them that well. I'm only telling you my experience for the past eight months. Once Victor got called into Don's office, the meeting went down beautifully. Don just ran down what the promotion would look like, how much money they would have to spend, and what their potential earnings would be. And he said, if, if this one works well, then maybe we'll do other things together. And it was a great meeting, went very well. FBI agent Joe Spinelli didn't care that they hadn't gotten Don to incriminate himself in that meeting, because now they had the relationship they needed. The Bureau, we were right where we wanted to be. We were getting ready to do a promotion with Don. We were ready to launder, allegedly launder, drug money in that promotion. But there was just one little problem. A couple of months before in Las Vegas, there had been a boxing match between Ray Boom Boom Mancini and a Korean fighter named Dooku Kim. Ray is a very, very strong guy. He's always been stronger than his opponents. Kim is just about equally as strong physically. Like two pit bulldogs in there banging away at each other. The fight was long and brutal. At the top of the 14th round, Mancini had beaten Kim bloody and knocked him out bad. They have uh, taken the challenger, a very game Dooku Kim, out of the ring on a stretcher and uh, taking him uh, to a nearby hospital where he will be attended to. And obviously we hope that the young man is all right. He was not all right. Kim stayed in a coma for four days and then he died. Now to be clear, Don King had nothing to do with this fight. But in a weird way, what happened to Kim might actually have saved Don because the FBI was about to pay millions of dollars to promote a very real fight to try to catch Don King laundering money. And Joe's bosses were like, what are we gonna do if something like what happened with Mancini and Kim happens in our fight? The FBI decided, look, we can't assume liability here. If you guys throw a promotion and God forbid a fighter gets killed and they find out the FBI was promoting that, you know, that's not gonna work. Joe had been working on this case for three years. He was so sure he was so close to finally getting real dirt on Don. And then Don gets to just walk away because of this terrible tragedy that had nothing to do with the case. I mean, that's some real nine live shit. 
I put my heart and soul in this operation. I did, as did everyone else who works with me on it. And we had reached that point where we felt we're going to be successful. We're going to find out directly how this all works as far as where the money goes, who's getting what and whatever. And they terminated it. So that's where it ended. Michael Franzese didn't get in any trouble for being caught up in Spinelli's sting operation, but he did eventually figure out the real story behind his racquetball buddy, Victor. I didn't find out initially that it was an undercover operation until I was on trial and Victor Quintana was called in as a witness. Franzese ended up getting convicted of racketeering and tax fraud for something that had nothing to do at all with either Don King or Operation Crown Royal. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Don King as he had so many times before, walked away completely unscathed. Not only that, but earlier that month, he had gotten news he had been waiting for for a long, long time. James Rhodes, the governor of Ohio, in his last week in office, granted Don a full pardon on the first-degree manslaughter charges from the killing of Sam Garrett back in 1966. So hey, good for Don, I guess. But when I hear this whole Crown Royal story, I can't help but think about how or why Don ended up in the hot seat in the first place. I mean, this whole sport has been run by white promoters almost exclusively. Promoters that even Spinelli said had been up to the same shady things at the same time as Don. But you go after the black guy? I have to ask this larger contextual question. Don King was a very loud, gregarious, Huge black man who managed to monopolize and take over the sport, as you said, in in a way that had never been done before. Was there a target on his back because he's a big black man who's doing it his way? I'm happy to answer that question. I think there's a tremendous amount of jealousy involved here because of who he is, because he is an African-American gentleman and somebody who made it to the top and beat out a lot of white promoters and show them that, you know, he's king and they're not literally and figuratively. I used to laugh when people would say to me, uh, you got a lot of animus towards Dodd because he's black, huh? My wife is African-American, okay? Did you know that? <laughs> she is. I, I, okay? I found that out recently, yeah. actually. Okay? So, yeah. so take that and stick it somewhere because that ain't working. <laughs> you know, The bottom line is he had overcome a lot of bias, no question about it. But you know, he didn't let that stand in his way to his credit. I don't have any real animus towards him. I don't dislike him. I dislike some of the things I heard. Right. that he was involved in. Make no mistake about that. And if the sport was reformed the way it should be, it would be very interesting to see how Don would do. But I'll tell you this, he'd still probably play by the rules and outsmart everyone else and still be the best promoter out there. Look, if Joe's standing 10 toes down on all that, I'm not going to say it's not his truth. But I'm just saying it sure feels familiar. And in the end... It kind of didn't matter because Don knew how to navigate all that shit. He was a survivor. You could try to bring him down, but Don would always find a way to shake it off. And he wore it as a badge of pride. I got so many daggers in my back, I look like a porcupine. But I realized that I'm a pioneer and a trailblazer and I must exert every effort known to mankind to try to vindicate the faith that has been extended in my behalf. Only in America could a Don King happen. I love this nation. This is a great nation. Only in America. Don said it so often it became his catchphrase. Like, only in America could this black man rise up from poverty in Cleveland, from out of a four-year bid for killing a man, 
to the crazy heights Don Keen had climbed to. Only in America could there be so much opportunity just sitting there for the taking. But you know what else? Only in America could that shit always be so precarious. Only in America could you have to watch your back at every single moment to make sure someone wasn't about to take you down. Next time on Power, Don King. There were these young kids boxing, living at the house with Customato. Cus would always say, Mike's going to be the next heavyweight champion. Mike Tyson was a god in many ways. And he was one of those athletes that bridged the space between athlete space and that kind of celebrity, but also hip hop. There is the iconic photo of Don King rushing over to Mike Tyson and lifting him up after he's won a championship. It's not even his fighter. What he saw in Mike Tyson was like a bonafide superstar. Don knows what a 20-something young black kid with some money wants to be seen as and who he wants to be seen with. And he has access to making Mike Tyson a celebrity. It's like, wow, this guy is a black dude who comes from the streets like me, who has a sordid past like I have. You know, I, I mug guys. This dude killed guys. And he said, I'll never sign with Don King. He kept saying that over and over again. But yet, it seemed that Don King was already trying to make his moves. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was hosted by me, Panama Jackson. Our producer is Tiffany Walker. Associate producers are Kyra Asabe-Bonsu and India Witkin. Additional production help from Pallavi Kotomasu. Our editor is Keith Romer. Mixing and sound design by Will Short at Spoke Media. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajasaka and production management by Jennifer Mystery. Our consulting producer is Radio Rahim. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to Grant Irving and Steve Ackerman. <laughs>